You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that has to go to summer school or else it's going to get held back a grade. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. Today's a big day. Why is today a big day, RJ? Because we're talking about a big thing. A very big thing. A couple big things. This is our 10th episode, so we're going to enter the double digits. This is also probably going to be our longest episode. Well, it's a whale-sized episode. (laughs) It's a whale of a tale. It's Moby Dick by Herman Melville. <laughs> Megan. RJ. Who's your favorite whale? Uh, Shamu. No, wait, Blackfish. Man, you're pretty basic. Are Shamu and Blackfish the same whale? Blackfish isn't a whale. <laughs> His name's Tillicum and he killed people. All right, fine. Uh, Baby Beluga by Raffi. Who's your favorite whale? Monstro. I don't even know who the fuck that is. It's the Pinocchio whale. The Pinocchio whale had a name? Yeah, Monstro. How do you even know that? When the f- what what a basic what, bitch. What the, what? Because I don't know the name of the whale that eats Pinocchio's dad. Look, there's not many fictional whales. There's Free Willy. Oh, shit. I didn't even think of Free Willy. That's my favorite whale. Daddy, I want to walk, walk back everything I said. Free Willy's my favorite whale. There ain't that many whales. <laughs> Clearly what we're face. establishing is there's more whales than you would think. Yeah. <laughs> uh but yes, we are we're gonna we're gonna tackle this whale sized story. A monstro of an episode. Yeah. A, a blackfish of a podcast. Moby Dick is widely loathed by many a college student and literature student and and all that fun things i don't know to be honest like moby dick obviously is like a classic canon literature that everybody's sort of aware of in some sense i don't know how many college students have to read it outside of the ones who have chosen to resign themselves to the hell that is a literature degree but if you have encountered this doorstop of a book people are pretty split on it and by split on it i mean most people hate it and then there's that percentage of people who are like, no, it's genius. You just don't get, you don't get Moby Dick. I'm in between. Yeah, well, here's the thing. The big difference that Moby Dick has on everything else that we have covered so far in, in, our, in the long uh, life of this podcast is that I fucking hate it. Not even like with some of these other books where I'm like, you know, eh, I'm kind of split on it. Or, oh, you know, I read it as a kid and I didn't like it and I came back to it as an adult. No, I read it when I was like 20 years old and I fucking hated it then. And I fucking hate it now and I'll fucking hate it forever. It's because you just can't see yourself out there on the seas wanting revenge. No, I'm usually on the land generally being pretty chill with other people. 
Mm-hmm. Or do you you have this yearning for sea vengeance that I just have never known about that allows the you to whole, identify with Captain Ahab? The wide open seas, Meg, where you question where does heaven begin and earth end? Yeah. It's just you and God out there. Wanting to kill a whale and, I don't know, like cuddle with your crewmates. It's very manly out, out there. It's super manly. I mean, what could be more manly than just you and your fellow seamen out on the deck being semen together semen under the sun all right i got it out of my system it's semen on the poop deck <laughs> you, you kind of stuttered on the delivery there but sure you got it the poop deck. yeah the poop deck yeah yeah before we can tackle this monster, though, we have to learn about a, a different monster entirely. Herman Melville. No, he's probably not a monster. I'm going to make that joke, and you're going to tell me about how he's had the worst life ever, and he's just a poor sweet boy, and I'm going to feel like a dick. No, so uh, Herman Melville is not a monster, but his family... Are they are they the real monsters? They may be the real monsters. This bio has hurt me Oh no! so much. Oh, no. Like Emily Dickinson levels of, of hurt? A different kind of anger. Oh boy. It's just boiling. Okay. There, like the wide open ocean. So Herman Melville, born August 1st, 1819, died September 28th, 1891. Born in New York City, he was the third child of eight that his family would have. His dad, Alan Melville, uh, was a merchant of French goods. His mother, Maria Gainsvort Melville, Gainsvort. I would have no idea how to pronounce his name. G A N S E V O O. Maria Gonsvort Melville was a homemaker. <laughs> Among his siblings, now pay attention here. Okay. His siblings were Alan. Uh huh. So named after dad. Right. Alan Jr., AJ. Gainsvort. What, wait, what? <laughs> named after mom. Helen Maria. Named after mom. And thankfully some kids not named directly after their parents. Augusta, Catherine, Francis, Priscilla, and Thomas. Gainsvort? Yes. They How named a kid Gainsvort. After her maiden last name. The mother's maiden name. So I hate this theme in our show. I hate people who name their kids after themselves. And for fuck's sake, Gainsvort. <laughs> it's pretty awful. How dumb and short-sighted are these people? Oh, Wait. We'll see. Ah, okay. So that was that was what you would call a rhetorical question. So Herman's childhood was pretty comfortable. The family always had at least three servants. They moved to new houses every couple of years, probably to accommodate the new crotch fruit the parents of Gainsvort <laughs> produced at a nonstop basis. <laughs> okay, it's not like 19 kids and counting. Like, cut them some fucking slack. Herman, along with the siblings, attended boarding school and received a formal education. Father of Gainsvort had a secret, though. <laughs> so you're just going to refer to them all by their relation to Gainsvort? Is he not even going to be Herman Melville? He's just going to be brother of Gainsvort? No, no, I am sticking to stigma solely to the parents because this is the parents' fault. Okay, fair they enough. They did this to Gainsvort, they did this to themselves. It's true, they deserve it. We got to do this for Gainsvort. So, father of Gainsvort had a secret, though. Okay. While the family lived this comfortable life, the family was living well above their means, and he was taking out a lot of loans and living on them. 
He took money from his own parents and from his wife's widowed mother. Oh, that's not a good look. Eventually, both families had enough and cut them off. As, as one does. On one business trip, father of Gainsworth showed the brains I would expect from someone who had his obvious intellect. He was traveling by steamboat, but ice forced the boat to stop. Instead of, like, getting a hotel room and waiting for the ice to melt, Father of Gainsworth decided to travel the final 70 miles home in an open horse carriage at two degrees below zero for two days and two nights. Wow. Did did he die? Obviously, Father of Gainsworth never played the Oregon Trail and was really impatient. Oh, boy. Anyway, shockingly, during his journey, dude got sick. Oh... Uh... He did make it home, but was immediately stricken by delirium and died shortly thereafter. Welcome to 1832. Herman Melville is 13. And surprise, this left the family in dire financial straits. Mm, yeah. Herman's formal education ended at this point as his mom could not afford to send him to school. Herman had to find a job to make money to help support the family. Oh, this is going to get worse, isn't it? He began working at a bank as an errand boy. The bank trusted him so much that they sent him alone, a 15-year-old boy, to make a delivery to Schenectady, New York. Eventually, Herman moved on from being a bank boy to being a school teacher before he took to the sea as a common sailor on merchant ships starting in 1839 when he was 20 years old. He was at sea for five years before he returned to Boston in 1844. During his sailing, he traversed both the Atlantic and the Pacific. He spent a lot of time in Polynesian islands. He used what he experienced as the basis of his later novels. Scholars contended that his five years at sea affected Herman in a few particular ways. Oh? One biographer claims that these years, quote, settled a hatred of external authority, a lust for personal freedom, and a growing and intensifying sense of his own exceptionalistness as a person. He was just there out on the sea all alone. He didn't matter. He was just a speck. Along with the resentful sense that circumstance and mankind together had already imposed their will upon him in a series of injurious ways. That seems like a lot to just be like, instead of just being like, my dad was a prick who wasn't good with money, and then I had to like be in charge of my whole house at 13, to God is dead and we are specks, and anyone who says otherwise, I'm going to punch in the teeth. Sea affects men in funny ways. Apparently. Another scholar believes the encounter with the wide open ocean where he was seemingly abandoned by God led Melville to experience a, quote, metaphysical estrangement and influence his social views in two ways. First, that he belonged to the genteel classes but sympathized with the disinherited commoners he had been placed among. Secondly, um, the... Let me just go breaking here. What's with these men who are like, I belong to the upper class, but, uh... Those dirty working men, I understand their plight. I'm not one of them, but I, I feel them, you know? Well, dude grew up in a house <laughs> where he had three servants at any given moment. And then he was a common sailor just going through the ocean all alone after being hurt in injurious ways. So injurious. The other big thing that came of his sailing experiences is because he spent so much time um, in Polynesian Island to let him experience and see the West... From an outsider perspective, at least in part, or at least to see how the West has impacted other places like the Polynesian Islands. Seeming places we fucked up real good. Talking about Moana happened there. Things are happy, man. They got the coconuts. <laughs> yeah. They got the leaves. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the song now. 
got the coconuts. <laughs> we got the leaves. Uh, the island gives us what we need. Yeah, I think it's okay. <laughs> so anyway, once he returned uh, stateside, he wrote his first novel, Taipei, in 1846, two years after he got back stateside, which he followed up with the sequel, Omu, the next year. Uh, both these novels were highly romanticized accounts of his time in the Polynesian Islands. These novels were actually successful, and Herman became a minor literary celebrity. In 1847, he met Elizabeth Shaw, a woman who was named after her mother who died birthing Elizabeth. Well, yep. if nothing else, at least it's consistent. Yep. So he was so smitten with daughter of dead mother with same name, he asked her father for permission to marry her, like, literally the first week of knowing her. The dad said no. The two got married three months later after a proper courtship. Much more reasonable. Of course. No word if they did the hanky-panky on the dead mother's grave. That just might be a special Shelley tradition. The specialist. Um, eventually, the marriage would produce four fruits of the crotch variety. A fanny, a Malcolm... Of course, another Elizabeth. Of course. Because at least one of the kids needs to share a parent's name, according to 19th century law. And they also created what they called a Stanwicks. Stanwick? No. Stan- Stanwicks. Stanwicks. S-T-A-N. Yeah, I got that much. W-I-X. Stanwicks. I hate this earth. <laughs> Melville continued writing. Uh, But the novels that followed were much less autobiographical, and they were not nearly as successful as the first two. In 1850, Herman moved the family um, that was now growing to an estate he named Arrowhead, because when he was surveying the land, he found a lot of arrowheads on the ground. Well, it's a good thing that, you know, he found arrowheads and not like a bunch of cow shit. Truly a creative mind at work. It was during this time Herman met another Ono Liquas alumnus, the King of Gold Mountain, himself nathaniel (laughs) hawthorne who is of course the author of the scarlet letter which fans may remember as a sexy bdsm romp that took place during the days of the puritans hot the two men would take walks through the glen together and talk about books and life and who knows what else what happens in the glen stays in the glen hawthorne was so smitten with herman that he wrote to another friend quote I liked Melville so much that I've asked him to spend a few days with me, which was an uncharacteristic move. Because as we remember, Hawthorne hated everyone and everything that was not his wife. It is true. Hawthorne was basically married to his work, so he generally never kept any overnight guest, but he wanted Herman. There is no word as to what they did during their sleepovers, but you could let your mind run wild. They probably talked about boys and books and if they thought the other one was pretty what we do know is that hawthorne was instrumental in getting moby dick published hooking herman up with some connections and herman dedicating moby dick to hawthorne melville continued writing in the following years but by now he had basically fallen off the map and his writing was generally considered inconsequential by his contemporaries during the last 30 years of his life, uh, he lived in relative obscurity, working office jobs, making a modest living, as his literature had fallen off the map by that time, and he never regained any notoriety. Case in point, when he died, the New York Times wrote an article referring to him as, quote, the late Hiram Melville. Oh, no! Hiram Melville. Hiram Melville. Oof. By the end of his life, 
Herman had only made about $10,000 from all his works, which would be about $180,000 today. The last work Herman worked on, which some people may have read in high school, I know I did, was Billy Bud, which was unedited at the time of his death and was actually not published until about 30 years after he died, once his literature became popular again. So the Melville Renaissance began after the 100th anniversary of his birth. The reason behind the revival is because... On that anniversary, the esteemed Ivy League academic Carl Van Doren wrote an article about Herman, which led to like half of his students to in turn write their theses, which were later published about Herman. So it was like a weird waterfall effect. It was. Huh. That this one guy found Herman interesting, and so all his students go, well, I guess we'll find him interesting too, and we'll all just start writing about him. And so when you have you know, a dozen Ivy League people writing about Herman Melville... Everyone's like, well, all the cool kids are doing it. I guess we better read it, too. Gotta see what this Hiram Melville fellow's all about. And so, after the revival, we are left with Moby Dick being taught across the land and seas. I mean, what you're dancing around, though, is, is the fact that, there, you know, he was in obscurity. People were not talking about Moby Dick, and that's because Moby Dick was a huge failure. Um, but well, we're going to get to why after we address the story itself i just it seemed kind of weird not mentioning that at all <laughs> yeah that basically after his first two novels he just became less and less and less popular sad times too many crotch fruits too many people named after their parents that yeah that appears uh, general despair obscurity and unfortunate naming conventions seem to be a uh, running theme on ono oh class all right rj so it's time to weigh anchor and hoist the mainsails and, and grab yard arms and uh, other walk planks. Yar. Oh boy. We're going to Moby Dick. Yeah. Yes, Abby. I know that's what Jack Sparrow says. It is what Jack Sparrow says. So that He's means my favorite whale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, I hope you're all comfortable. On your, you know, metaphorical whaling ship that we just climbed onto because this book is 135 fucking chapters long, plus epilogue. So, I'm gonna be moving through this at a pretty steady clip, but there's a lot, so, you know, hang in there. Grab a snack. Um, unless you're driving right now, in which case, don't, don't grab a snack, and, uh, maybe you'll hit traffic. So, Everybody knows pretty much the opening line to Moby Dick because it's just, call me Ishmael, which kind of has some weird connotations to it because he's not saying, my name is Ishmael. He's saying, no, 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 you're going to call me Ishmael. Ishmael, in quotes. I wish it was more autobiographical. Call me Gassenvort. <laughs> call me Gassenvort. Here's my tale. So, Ishmael is a dude who apparently hates people, this is self-described, a person who hates people so much that to avoid them, he frequently goes to sea to spend long months on what is essentially a small, inescapable bucket full of people, but whatever. He specifically, this time, wants to go on a whaling ship, because he doesn't know much about whales, but he thinks killing them sounds really awesome. So Ishmael gets into the port town of New Bedford late at night and the inns are all full up and he's at this shitty rundown inn and he's like, bruh, like I'm desperate. I will sleep under the stairs. And the innkeeper's like, nah, you can have a bed. There's another dude already in it though. 
which is the setup for a wacky rom-com, if ever I heard one. That man, John Candy. <laughs> Trains, planes, and whales. Uncle Buck. <laughs> Uncle Starbuck. <laughs> wow, there's a lot of John Candy uh, movies that may at work here. But plot twist, the uh, dude who already has the bed is not John Candy. He is a... Gashavort. No. Crotch fruit. I mean, he's... Everyone is someone's crotch fruit, RJ. Nathaniel Hawthorne. Please stop. This other dude is not white and covered in tattoos and parading around with a shrunken head, which, okay, to be fair, that last one's kind of weird. His name is Queequeg, and he's a presumably Polynesian prince from an island that Melville made up. And even though Ishmael is super freaked out by him at first, because racism, at the end he's so tired that he's like, whatever, and they agree to get cozy under the covers together. RJ, do you want to start making some mouth music to uh, kind of set the mood here? Some sexy mouth In sounds? In the jungle, the no. mighty jungle, the light sleeps tonight. Not the right setting, but okay, fine, I'll take it. Weem-a-whip, weem-a-whip, <laughs> I mean, because that's what happens. Like, they wake up basically spooning, and Ishmael is is into it. Like, he doesn't wake up with, like, what you would assume would be, like, a, of the times, a sort of gay panic. No. He's super comfy, and he's kind of all about it. And then when they wake up uh, and get up and to start their day, Ishmael just kind of stares at Queequeg's naked body while he gets dressed. Just, you know, checking it out, seeing what it's all about. Later in the day, he heads to the local whaleman's chapel, because it's a traditional thing sailors do before heading out on a voyage. Even Queequeg's there, and he does not share the those religious beliefs or any of that. It's just, like, it's a sailor thing. It's good luck. So the minister is a man named Father Mapple, which is just fun to say. Mapple. An old sailor turned clergyman who, in a mix of preaching and crazy old sailor man speak, does a sermon about the Bible story of Jonah and the whale, in which Jonah gets eaten by a whale for disobeying God and not asking for forgiveness. I'm sure this will in no way be thematically significant. For Jonah or the whale? Mm, You know, either or. Take your pick. So they head back to the inn, and Ishmael stares at Queequeg some more as the other dude just kind of hangs out. Ishmael describes his heart melting, like, no, for real, for this crazy brown pagan man, and they share a tobacco pipe, and then Queequeg hugs him and says that they're married now. No, for real. And then there's, like, some kind of half-hearted no-homo from Ishmael about how Queequeg doesn't really mean married. Um, you know, they're just gonna be best friends and share everything, and now they would die for each other. For real. You know, just guys being dudes sticking in his boil hole (laughs) dudes who then snuggle down in bed together for some extremely heterosexual cuddling alright what I want to point out here though is so basically like Ishmael literally says his heart melts for Queequeg and they've known each other for like a day and a half at this point so it's kind of like it's kind of like and, uh, and Elizabeth. And daughter of dead mother of same name. <laughs> yeah. You got to get her name right. Daughter of dead mother of same name. It just roll, rolls off the tongue. So Ishmael <laughs> is basically Bella Swan. And Queequeg is Edward. Twilight. But with whales. So they catch a ferry to Nantucket. And Ishmael gives a history of Nantucket. And I skim ahead to the next chapter because who cares? 
Ishmael checks out boats that are looking for sailors, and at random he kind of chooses the Pequod. The Quad? Pequod? Pequod? I'm just gonna say Pequod, and if I fuck it up, whatever, I don't care. He climbs aboard and signs himself up, despite the two dudes that own the ship telling Ishmael that they don't think he's gonna be a good sailor because he looks like a big, soft baby who can't handle whaling. And also, he doesn't want to get on this boat anyway because the captain of it is a weird old crazy man. And then the two of them just sort of start fist-fighting each other, and Ishmael's like, yeah, this seems right. I'm getting good vibes here. Me and my hetero-savage life partner, Queequeg, will sail with you. But they don't want Queequeg because of the aforementioned savageness. And also, he's a cannibal, maybe? But in the end, that doesn't matter because... Queequeg shows off that he's super good at harpooning shit, and then suddenly the whole, like, non-white, non-Christian cannibal thing doesn't matter anymore. Basically, so they're like, oh, he's really good at hunting whales. All that stuff that we said was important because racism, we don't care anymore now. Because money. So we learn some more lore about Ahab from people. Um, they say, you know. Ahab. <laughs> Ahab. Ahab. Cap- Captain Ahab. You're <laughs> so full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> now my favorite is when they translated this to hebrew is this gonna be a joke that only like five people get he became a heeb god no <laughs> you're so fucking proud of yourself hey man you want it you want it i got it but... And Ishmael works in that version of the story, too. It's yeah, a nice Jewish name. It's true. I guess. It's a biblical name. No? Like I know the, like I know a Bible. I don't know. Moses, Ishmael, Ahib. <laughs> They're all there. They got good, out of Egypt together. Good little Jewish boys at sea. That's a matzah. Well, yeah, if you're at sea, you don't want leavened bread. That's going to mold. This is true. You want some oranges and some matzah. We learn more lore about <laughs> Captain Ahab from people, and that's that, you know what? He's a good captain. It's like, okay. Uh, that he hasn't been the same since a whale gnawed off his leg, which, you know, fair. That he was once dead for three whole days. Uh... Well, I've heard of this character before. <laughs> yeah. The son of God. Uh, no. Jesus. No. And then also that he has done, quote, strange and terrible things tantric sex one would assume because we're not given any other details but it's too late for regrets because it's time to set sail and the ship sets off into the ocean but ahab is nowhere to be seen and is apparently hiding in his cabin which is weird but there's no time to think about that either because it's time for well when i go to sea i go to the lido deck and i drink a lot and then i go to the buffet and then I try to do some skiing, you know, like in the little pool where, like, <laughs> they kind of shoot the water at you. And so it's not really like being in the ocean, but it's a lot safer because you really don't want to be in the ocean. You might die there. I've watched a lot of Deadliest Catch. <laughs> the ocean, really deadly. The ocean's deadly as fuck. So, yeah, you stick on the Weedle deck. I don't care where the fuck a heeb's at or a have or whatever his name is. He can stay wherever, man. I'm just chilling. Living it up like Ishmael over here, my buddy, and uh, Maui of the tattooed brown Polynesian man. Him and I, we'd be singing. I could see what's happening here. Well, no, you can't see what's happening here because unfortunately it's not time for any of that stuff. It's time for whaling chapters. 
which is much less fun. Why are they crying? No, no. Where Melville interrupts the plot <laughs> to... <laughs> Why? They make me feel that way. So, I mean, like, it could work the other way. So, Melville interrupts the plot to tell us, while still in the narration of Ishmael, all you never really wanted to know about whaling. Now, I've heard every argument there is about these chapters. Oh, there were all the best written lines are, or they give us more insight into Ishmael's character and also teach you stuff about whales. And, of course... But the intellectual deconstruction of whales acts as a clever juxtaposition against the mythical fear and reverence that surrounds the white whale in the story proper. Sounds like you don't like whaling. No, not really. You... It's, 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 it's just boring. If I'm going to read a book about awkwardly gay whalers and psycho whale hunting captains, then, then just give me that. Just give me that and leave me alone. Don't try to learn me a thing about whales. I will say, in defense of the book, at the time it was written, you gotta remember, whales were like the food source, the oil source, which meant the light source and energy source of a lot of America. Which means they probably already knew about whales. So they're probably reading that just like, I already know this shit. Skip, Tell skip, me, skip, skip, skip. How much do you know about cows? Or corn? I know so much about corn. Yeah. Yeah. The Native Americans called it maize. Maize part. <laughs> I don't think people knew about it. Like, Megan doesn't know about cows. I Ask me a thing about cows, Mr. Cow Expert. All right, how do they kill a cow? Butcher a cow. Uh, they zap it right in the forehead with the zapper thing so that they knock it out. Thanks, so, country for old men. <laughs> That's the sound it makes. That's the sound it makes. Yeah, Javier Bardem slaughters each individual <laughs> cow. <laughs> oh see he knows a thing about sailing or so i'm led to believe by tv commercials it's true in ghost sailing even javier bardem is multifaceted in his career choices continue fine sidetrack we come back to the story after these first whaling chapters and we meet the first mate starbuck first name mocha frappuccino he's a lean tight steadfast and reasonable man which i guess is why he's the first mate to captain pegleg revenge so does he look like a mermaid at least not from what Ishmael tells us. Does he split the tail? Is that is that a sex thing? Have you never noticed on the Starbucks logo? Oh, I thought she just had like like two tails. The tail was split. I thought she just had like two tails. Wow. Uh, we learned about some of the other crew too, but I'm going to skip that because Ishmael at this point straight up tells the reader pretty much all these poor dipshits are going to eat it at some point during the voyage. So why bother? Days pass, and still no sign of Ahab, though someone is clearly, like, giving orders to the first mate and the rest of the crew, and then one day he's just there. He's just out on the deck, like, I've just always been here, this is normal. Um, and he looks like a dude who's kind of seen the edge of death. He, he doesn't look great, he's sort of haggard. And, uh, he has a big white scar that runs from his hairline all the way down his face and neck, and maybe further? And Ishmael has this weird moment where he's like, I wonder if it runs down his whole body... But then he stops undressing Ahab with his eyes when he notices the captain's fucking rad ivory leg carved from the jawbone of a sperm whale. You know, he might be a crazy person, but that is metal as fuck. No, it's ivory. But mostly, he just kind of stands around and doesn't actually say words until six months into the voyage. What the fuck? He's a hands-off kind of manager. 
No, except he's not, because once he gets into it, he's into it. He has weird temper tantrums, he yells at the crew, he yells at his pipe, and then he throws it in the ocean. And he just gets all, like, twitchy and excited whenever they see something that might be whales on the horizon, because one of them might be... White. Blah, 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 more whaling chapters, although... This one in particular has, like, a pretty good joke about sperm whales and semen. So, you know, we can give Melville credit for that. But do we really want to wade through miles of dense prose for one halfway decent dick joke? No. The answer to that question is no. And back to the plot. Already in progress. Ahab is in an especially weird and agitated mood one day, calling the entire crew out on the deck, and apropos of nothing, he pulls a gold doubloon out of his pocket, nails it to the mast and says it belongs to whoever among them kills a white whale with a crooked jaw and three puncture wounds on its side. And the men all gasp, because apparently everyone who isn't Ishmael knows which whale he's talking about. It's the one that took Ahab's leg, bane to all whalers, Moby Dick. And Ahab confirms that yes, Moby Dick is the whale that attacked him, and also that all regular whaling duties are to be suspended in favor of hunting Moby Dick and killing it dead and or dying in the process. Ahab tries to sort of sway the crew over to his side also by being like, Drinks are on me! Everybody get hammered on the boat as we go on our crazy suicide quest, and it works. Because the men are totally down with the suicide revenge quest until Starbuck, that old stick in the mud, points out that, uh, hey, we were hired to hunt whales and make money and not join Captain Whale-hating McScarface's blood vendetta against a single fucking whale. Like, the ocean's pretty big. You get that, right? Like, one whale, the whole ocean, the odds are not good. And Ahab, Never tell me the odds. Don't <laughs> ever tell me the odds. Never tell me the odds. <laughs> what, Starbuck Chewy? I don't think Chewy ever told See, fucking Han Solo the odds. <laughs> he might have. You don't know. Yeah, I do. It was always one of the fucking droids. Yeah, that's true. Starbuck is more like C-3PO. British? Boring. <laughs> I'm C-3PO. Yep, that's how he sounded, all right? Yeah. Such a good C-3PO impression. Anyway. <laughs> stop. <laughs> and they had Stop. <laughs> Ahab's like, I will literally pay you money from my own pocket, if you let me turn this boat into my personal vengeance vessel. And Starbuck again objects with the argument, dude, it's it's a whale. It's a dumb animal just doing its thing, and you're acting like it not only bit your leg off because it hates you personally, but also it fucked your wife and took a shit in your bed. And Ahab argues, yeah, no, but that, for real. The whale is Satan, and it hates me, and I hate him, and we're gonna murder each other, and for whatever reason, Starbuck gives in. They named your kid Gassenvort. <laughs> this whale named my son Gassenvort. He must die. And maybe that's why Starbuck went. Yeah, all right. That's a good that's a good point. He deserves it now. Then it gets weird, relatively speaking. And the next few scenes are not told to us by Ishmael, but as a play, like complete with stage directions and a monologue told from the perspective of Ahab. So that's a strange thing that kind of happens. Uh, Ahab's little soliloquy basically boils down to, holy shit, I can't believe these guys are actually on board with this, even though I'm obviously completely bonkers. Also, that's a pretty sunset, but I can't really enjoy it because I'm too busy thinking about whale murder. 
Then we're back with Ishmael again as he learns some Moby Dick lore about how he's a vicious, bloodthirsty murder whale. Possibly immortal, definitely capable of being everywhere in the ocean at any given time, and so, you know, just basically Batman of the sea in terms of superstition. I'm Moby Dick. We get to hear about the fateful fight between Ahab and Moby D when he destroyed the whaling boats on Ahab's ship, knocking Ahab into the water, and then, when he was, like, flailing around, just came up and nipped his leg right off. You know, I like imagining when these fights happen that Moby is actually the head... I knew, I knew you were going to do this. ...of the artist Moby. Yes, who no one remembers. That bald head cutting through the water, and he jumps out, and he takes a literal bite. Can, can you name a single song by Moby? Because I can't. No, without Googling. Name a single Moby song. If you can name one without Googling, <laughs> I'll let you keep that joke. You're already typing, so you already blew it. Ahab's pretty upset, as you might imagine, with having his leg bitten off by a whale, and he has a complete mental breakdown, coming out the other side as a crazy man who blames Moby Dick for every bad thing that has ever happened, ever. Because that makes sense. And then they put him in charge of another ship, because, you know, that makes sense, too. So Ishmael ruminates with what I'm not sure is a total lack of self-awareness, or maybe the most self-awareness he's ever had on how creepy whiteness is. He thinks about whiteness, that it's void, it's empty, it's ghostly and eerie. The stark absence of color. This is what Moby Dick is. It's also what plain Greek yogurt is, but you don't see Ahab running through the dairy aisle shrieking about devils, so... I don't know. At this point, uh, Ishmael fades out of the narrative again, and we focus on... Yeah, that's it. Bye, Ishmael. And we focus on Ahab obsessively charting the ocean in the hope of finding one single whale in the entire fucking ocean. He should have done his whale call. Should have got Regina Spector out there. Really? Not going for, like, the obvious Finding Nemo joke? Oh, shit. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. No, not Finding Finding Dory. She does it in Finding Nemo, too! I don't remember that. It's me, Ahab, Moby, come to me. It's Ahab. <laughs> it's Would have saved a lot of time. Yes. <laughs> and then Melville has to stop and take a whole chapter to remind us just how fucking big whales are. In case anyone wasn't clear on that. Big. To try to keep his crazy under wraps, Ahab distracts the crew by letting them hunt some garden variety non-demon whales. One appears, and then suddenly there are also just five dudes on the deck around Ahab. Turns out they're his special whale hunting team that he assembled just for getting Moby Dick, and they've apparently been successfully hiding from the entire crew for months now. The Expendables. When did they eat? When did they poop? Where did they poop? The deck. Not the Weedo deck, though, because that place is still pretty nice. Yeah, well. Yeah, he got a tan there. You gotta have the wristband to get on the Weedo deck. Apparently no one on the crew cares about this because it's whale-killing time, except no, it's not because a storm hits and the whales get away. God forbid something exciting should happen. 
Storms are exciting. I guess, except it's like, it's just sort of like, oh, it's just a storm. Time passes, and the ship chases mysterious water spouts and weather storms, and not much else goes that on. That sounds pretty exciting. Water spouts? Storms? Wait. Well, the way the water spouts are is they see it from far off, and they think it's a whale blowing up water through its <laughs> blowhole, but then it's like just not... <laughs> Like it's not it's not anything. Thank you for your 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 fully work. <laughs> Wait, what's that supposed to be? I'm so turned on right now. Maybe it's Ishmael and Queequeg. Maybe they're off banging. Maybe that's why we haven't seen them in so long. I could see what's happening here. <laughs> You're pretty horny and I'm down to fuck. <laughs> you were at sea, there's not much else to do. There aren't any whales, but there's all these dudes. Hey! <laughs> I'm Queequeg! So, that's not very Disney. <laughs> they pass another whaling ship that's in pretty bad shape, but they aren't able to communicate with them because the wind is pushing them away from each other. Whoosh. It's totally not a bad omen or anything. Whoosh. Then they see another ship called Town Ho and can actually talk with them. And we get a very long story about two dudes on the ship bitch fighting with each other until Moby Dick appears and straight snatches one of them off the fucking ship and into the ocean. And then we get three more chapters about whales and pictures of whales and paintings of whales and carvings of whales and rocks that are sort of shaped like whales if you squint at them. But then they see Moby Dick. Well, nope. Sorry. False alarm. It's just, just a giant squid. Let's talk about rope for an entire chapter instead. Wait, there's a whale for real now. And they sail out and they stab it a bunch and they kill it super dead with it literally spouting blood out from its blowhole. And where has this cool death metal shit been for the past 50 fucking chapters? I don't know. So they got a butcher, this big ass whale. And we learn there's a specific part of the ship where they deal with whale blubber called the blubber room. Is the room for the blubber? Yeah, I, it's not my fault if you can't find the humor inherent in the word blubber room. Blubber room. Fuck you. Uh, while this is happening, Ahab takes the decapitated whale head and basically is like, tell me your ocean secrets, whale head, and it's fucking weird. Then Ishmael gives us way too many details about taking apart a whale to harvest its sweet, sweet oils and, um, spermaceti, which is semen that's stored in the whale's head. Yeah. Okay. I think he might know as much about whales as I do about cows, but sure. Uh, they kill some more whales. And they steal some ambergris from a French ship, and everything's going pretty okay. And then this kid that they have on board, um, an African-American cabin boy named Pip, has to step in for a crew member on one of the whaling boats, and he is not about it. He freaks out and jumps out of the boat and gets tangled in the whaling line, which they have to cut so he doesn't drown, and then they lose the whale. Pip is informed that he is worth way less than a whale and needs to man the hell up. Except then he does it again, and the other guys in the boat are just like, Fuck it, we'll get him later, except they forget. We, we, oh shit, that's right, that kid. We left in the ocean. The boat does pick him up much, much later, and now little Pip is traumatized. But no one cares, because they're too busy huddled below decks, kneading spermaceti together. It's kneading with a K, like you would do with, like, bread dough. Except, 
It's just a bunch of dudes wrist deep in some white squishy whale goo, and Ishmael fucking loves it. It's it's his favorite. He it's a transcendent experience with him because something is wrong with Ishmael. And then they cut the whale's dick off and they make a robe out of it because this is apparently a thing and I'm not even going to touch that one. Then they run into another ship and they meet Ahab's evil twin or I mean I guess the good twin, Ahab's probably the evil twin in the form of Captain Boomer. Captain Boomer has a sweet whalebone arm, and Ahab's like, oh my god, same! And then Boomer tells him how they encountered Moby Dick, and old MD did in fact bite his arm off. And they've actually seen him twice since then, but they've left him alone. And Ahab's like, what? Aren't you consumed with the white iron heat of revenge that makes your brain boil over with rage? And Boomer's like, nah, dude, losing one arm was enough for me. It's like, you know, Live and let live, you know? And Ahab is super sad that his new bestie doesn't share his thirst for vengeance. Then Queequeg, I don't know if you remember him at this point. It's been a while. Remember when this book was about Queequeg and Ishmael and their weird undying love for each other? That was good times. So Queequeg gets sick while emptying the hold to find a leak and thinks he's going to die. He makes Ishmael make him a coffin out of a little longboat and put him and all his stuff in it, and Ishmael does this. And then Queequeg lies in it for a while and is like, okay, cool, I'm good now. And then he isn't going to die anymore. So that happens. Ahab, in the meantime, makes the blacksmith forge him a crazy big fuck-off harpoon made from 12 other harpoons, and then he makes all the harpooners on board give him some of their blood. So he can literally forge it in human blood because he's fucking insane. They kill some more normal whales, as is the way. And then there's another huge storm with like fire and lightning and everybody's kind of freaking out. But Ahab is like super into it. He's just getting off on the chaos and the crew is finally like, look, we don't want to do this death vendetta thing anymore. And Ahab is just like, too late fuckers, no take backs. Welcome to the hellboat. Those guys are pussies. It sounds like every carnival cruise I've ever been on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's usually like around the six nights, like the night before we return to dock. Like, it's cool. <laughs> some fires, some lightning, some blood feuds with whales. Yeah, it's like Burning Man, but at sea. Ah. Afterwards, Starbuck briefly contemplates shooting Ahab in the head, something he probably should have done a good 60-odd chapters back, but he doesn't. Because Starbuck doesn't do anything useful ever. Why is there a coffee chain named after him? Why aren't we drinking a Queequeg pumpkin spice latte? Meanwhile, little Pip is still all traumatized and crazy, thinking that he died back in the water and is some weird little ghost boy now. And Ahab sees this and is like, You're the only other one making sense around here, kid. You get to live in my cabin now. Because that's not creepy. Then they lose uh, one of their little life preserver buoy things, and they have to use Queequeg's coffin as a substitute life preserver because subtlety. And Ahab actually comes by and sees it and is like, this is fucking weird, even for me. And then another ship passes by that has just gotten its shit kicked in by Moby Dick. And the captain of the other ship is like, hey, a whaling boat went missing in like all the chaos and my son is on it. Like, please help us look for it. I'll pay you money. And Ahab's like, sorry, I can't hear you over my intense desire for whale murder. And they leave. And everyone feels really shitty. And, you know, things are tense. And they find another ship 
that Moby Dick attacked. So they know they're on the right trail here. He apparently attacked the ship and, like, killed a bunch of their dudes. And so Ahab, like, waves his blood harpoon in the air at the other ship and is like, I'm gonna kill him! And then the other captain's like, yeah, fuck him up, son! And Ahab gets to feel validated. And then Ahab, in a rare moment of lucidity, tells Starbuck that being at sea is lonely and terrible. And then he has a young, pretty wife at home, and it's really stupid that he neglects her in pursuit of chasing a big fucking fish across the world. Starbuck gently tries to tell him that, hey, we don't have to be chasing the big fucking fish. And Ahab's like, yep, man, it's really too bad that I have no choice but to stab kill that death whale instead of heading home to my wife. Real shame. Darn. Starbuck's like, well, I tried. Because that's all he's good for. RJ, you still, are you hanging in? Yep. Well, this is it. Because now, 133 goddamn chapters in, he's here. He's finally here! R2-D2? No. Moby fucking dick. beep boop pop boop pop boop pop boop beep boop pop boop boop So they chase after him, and Ahab goes out in a whaling boat that Moby Dick bites in half and sends Ahab into the water. But he gets away, and the crew rescues him, and Starbuck is like, please, can we stop this? And Ahab shook up after finally encountering the white whale again is just like okay you know what yeah you're right this is fucking insane let's go home before we all get killed like i don't know what i was thinking oh shit bro for reals nah not for reals oh you had me <laughs> i had just so good oh yeah, oh, yeah. uh they chased moby dick back down and he just fucks their whole ship up real good and he kills some dudes and Ahab is undeterred and weirdly enough everybody else is like also still pretty amped despite like the danger and Moby Dick appears again and Ahab's like it's murder time sperm face and Moby Dick smashes the ship to fucking bits and Ahab gets tangled up in a line attached to the whale and the whole fucking mess sinks down in a whirlpool like man what a fucking punk all this big talk about vengeance and murder and stabbing things with blood harpoons and then pfft, nada. Drowns like a little bitch. But what of our crew? Well, they're all dead as hell. Except, of course, for our narrator, Ishmael, who survives by clinging to Queequeg's coffin. Try singing that three times fast. Which well, is you might want to mention this is in the epilogue, as this matters a lot. <sighs> The epilogue of the story is Nair is Ishmael surviving by, as I previously mentioned, clinging to Queequeg's coffin, which is good for him, but a bummer for Queequeg, because he did. The ship with the captain that was looking for his son picks him up, and that's how this bullshit ends. So, fuck whales, fuck the ocean, and fuck Herman Melville. The end. Hey, Meg. Yeah, RJ? So a couple things here about Moby Dick. Tell me them things. So first, this book was published in England as well as the U.S. It was published in England first. So for whatever reason, when they published this in England, they edited the book a lot from what Melville sent over. Like, they took out... That's, they, an, that's another thing that happens a lot here on Onola Class. They changed over 700 wordings, thousands of punctuations, and made a whole bunch of spelling changes, and just took out a whole bunch of stuff right out of the book. Like, they took out entire passages. So in in England, it was published in three volumes, where in the U.S. it just came out as one book. 
So there's like a whole bunch of weird stuff going on. England was just doing whatever the fuck it wanted. But there were pa- certain passages that the English just would not publish, in particular the sacrilegious passages that attributed human failures to God. And when Ahab stands with a crucifixion on his face, they didn't like that kind of imagery, so they just left it out. They took out a lot of anything that could be read as a sexual innuendo. They left out the uh, part where the sex life of whales was discussed. They felt that wasn't worth publishing. Too hot for England. Also, when Ishmael worried about the nature of Queequeg's underwear... They left that out, and you didn't discuss that, so Megan, you're just as good as the English. Well, I mean, I, I want to put it past you. I described it as Ishmael reflecting on Queequeg's nude body, so I got the important bits. And so basically, completely different books, but most importantly of all is in England, they didn't get the epilogue where Ishmael survives. And so in England, people read this book that starts, Call Me Ishmael. They read this entire narration, which for the most part is told from Ishmael's point of view. And then they're led to believe Ishmael dies with everybody else because they're not told anyone survives the attack from Moby Dick. And so initially the reviews of Moby Dick in England were kind of positive. But then there was this trend of people really picking at the fact of like, well, wait, how can this book be a first person narrative if the narrator dies in the fight with the whale. This doesn't make sense. This book sucks. Fuck this book. Lights. That's bullshit. Like, I have a big problem with that because you know what? I may hate this book, but, like, that's super unfair. Ishmael vanishes from the narrative a bunch. We get the weird scenes that are structured as plays with, like, stage directions. We get perspectives of characters who aren't Ishmael that Ishmael could never have known. So it's weird that they that's what they take issue with. Well, like, well, how could he die at the end and be telling the story? Well, how could we be inside Ahab's fucking head, English book reviewers? And so so you had this mixture of reviews in England where they were positive for the most part, but then the big London journal said, no, this whole book doesn't make sense. The guy died. Fuck this book. This makes no sense. Crap. And so this is the review that basically is the review. Um, because it's like philosophical and it's the one that's the most esteemed. The book then gets published in America where it does have the epilogue, where it has everything that Melville wanted in it. The difference between the two books is actually hundreds of pages in the end. So it's a big difference between the different editions. And initially the American reviews again are positive. People are like, hey, this is okay. It's like, it tells us a lot. They like what's going on. But then they catch wind of that London review by that esteemed journal and they go, well, these English people, man, they know some shit. And we didn't read this thousand-page book. And so then there's a bunch of American reviews about how, yeah, the narrator dies. How does this happen? Even though in the American version, the narrator clearly <laughs> survives. And so now you know which journals didn't bother to read the fucking book. That they just copied the reviews that came over from England. But unfortunately, it is, again, the esteemed journals in America that were the lazy ones. And so they're the ones who copy what they said in London. And so it's these esteemed reviews that are the ones that basically get published a lot. And those are the ones that get respected. And so people are like, oh yeah, Moby Dick, stupid book, narrator dies, fuck it. It's literally the same thing about a high schooler not reading the book and decided to crib it off Wikipedia. 
Except somebody edited Wikipedia to say, like, some shit like, Moby Dick was actually in Ahab's head the entire time, and then they put that in their paper, because clearly they didn't read the fucking thing. 19th century version of Cribbing. Yes. Poor, poor Hiram Melville. Poor Hiram Melville. Um, Brother of Gasport. <laughs> I don't think that was it anymore. All right. There's one thing I want to talk about, just real quick, before we come to the end here, and that is adaptations there are as you know it's famous famous work work everybody talks about now after after before that you know fucking london journal fucked everything up but probably the most famous adaptation is one from 1956 directed by john houston who is very famous for directing like huge epic movies and also apparently being kind of a dick and the script was adapted by sci-fi writer ray bradbury who we really have to do an episode on because he's, like, my fave. And, uh, fun fact, Ray Bradbury actually told Houston in regards to Moby Dick, yeah, I've never been able to make it through the damned thing. That is the direct quote. (laughs) So even Ray Bradbury was like, fuck this. So it stars Gregory Peck as Captain Ahab. And, uh, Peck was not the first choice for the role, and he apparently knew this and was just sort of not about the whole thing. And this was actually six years before he became America's clean-cut, non-racist lawyer dad, Atticus Finch, in the To Kill a Mockingbird movie. So, at this point, he's 38. He knows he's, like, too young and also kind of uncomfortably handsome to be playing nutjob Mick Seaman. And he's, like, the whole movie, he was kind of sort of constantly squinting into the sun and looking sort of constipated, and he just looks uncomfortable. Basically, even though the film was well-received and maintains a respectable 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, he was just super embarrassed about it for, like, years after. In fact, there was supposed to be a scene in Jaws where the dude they hired to kill Jaws, whose name I can't think of now, there's a scene where they wanted him to be watching Moby Dick and, like, laughing at the inaccuracies in the movie, and Gregory Peck blocked them from being able to do it because he's like, even then, he's like, no! No footage. No one shall see. So that was kind of weird. The only other awesome thing about this movie is that Orson Welles is in it. As the whale? I knew you were going to say that. No, as Father... Omicron? <laughs> as, as Father Mac... I'm a planet that eats other robots <laughs> that are tinier than me. A whale that eats other whales. No, he's in it very briefly as Father Mapple, the one who gives the Jonah and the whale speech. And it's a great example of taking some kind of boring shit and making it sound awesome. It's totally worth looking up on YouTube because, like, if there's one thing Orson Welles does really well, it's monologue. And it's just, like, a really cool little bit there. And he he looks like a homeless lunatic. He's got this huge, crazy beard. And, like, really, he should have been Ahab. Like, that shit writes itself. Big, uh, big mistake on their part. There was a TV miniseries version in 1998 where Gregory Peck actually pops up again as Father Mapple for whatever reason. And I guess he got, you know, over his shit with the movie and then he won a Golden Globe for it. Uh, And Ahab is played by Patrick Stewart, who looks like he's having a stroke. One last thing. In the heart of the sea, Chris Pratt. Oh, yeah, no, there, yeah, there is in the heart of the sea. I guess we could, that's not the last thing, but yeah. What, a year or so ago, there was in the heart of the sea with... Chris Hemsworth. No, Chris Pine. <laughs> Chris Evans. <laughs> Chris Cross. Gonna make you jump, jump. And it was 
a, a retelling of the actual story that her, uh, Melville based Moby Dick on where this, like, for real whale attacked the fuck out of this ship. Like, seemed like it was specifically targeting this one ship and just being like a little devil whale. But I haven't watched that movie. So I can't really tell you anything about it. But the one thing that I wanted to mention, apart from In the Heart of the Sea, is in 1997, there was an anime TV show version named Hakuge, Legend of the Moby Dick. It's a sci-fi retelling of the book, with Moby Dick being a whale-shaped sentient spaceship with the power to destroy planets. YouTube the English dub preview if you want to laugh so hard that your soul leaves your body. Moby Dick. It's a, it's a sentient <laughs> spaceship named the Moby Dick. Megan. RJ. Moby Dick. It's a whale, all right. Good or better. I hate this book. And I realize that it's for the incredibly petty reason of it's really long and I think it's really boring. And I have absolutely no interest in these dudes who are at sea just kind of ruminating on life and being like, God is the arbiter of everything bad and I'm not responsible for the things that make me upset or maybe I am but who cares I'm a murder this whale no actually I'm not I'm gonna string you along for 135 fucking chapters and then I'm gonna drown because I got my legs tangled in some rope which like okay yeah fine metaphors don't care I gotta read this I you know I gotta fucking write a 20 page paper on it and it's just it's just I don't I don't want it I don't fucking want it I was promised gays in the ocean, hunting whales. I got none of that. Bad. RJ? What? <laughs> Moby Dick. Good or Gassenfort? So the first real time I read Moby Dick, because I think I read like one of those kid classic versions of Moby Dick that had like a illustration on every page when I was a kid, so that doesn't really count. Yeah. Um... That when I was in college, though, we read Moby Dick across the length of a semester that we would read other novels as we would kind of limp our way through Moby Dick, and we skipped most of the whaling chapters. I'm kind of okay with Moby Dick, and for no other reason, I gotta have a lot of fun with the paper I wrote for Moby Dick, and I implore everyone that if you ever go back to reread Moby Dick, it's something to consider. And what I wound up arguing in the paper I wrote is that Ahab is of mixed race and this whole novel is about his psychosis of being of mixed race where they do refer a couple times to his bronze skin and bronzed body and he drowns in the black bubbling ocean in the end by this white whale and there's a lot of white versus black and there is Pip who he's the only person that seems to like Pip and... There is, like, this weird thing with the race going on. Well, my only problem with that is they're all fucking bronze. They're out on the ocean at sea. So that that's a little bit of a reach for me. Like, they all are probably... No one, no one is pale on that ship. And there's definitely... I think you can make the case that, yeah, he is battling a giant, giant whiteness. But also, I don't think the fact that of Pip being black is all that significant because he points out uh melville points out several times that the crew of the ship is really diverse you got a whole lot of dudes of different varying nationalities and races and ethnicities on the ship which is also part of the thing that you know they're all sort of equal because they're you know at sea and all that matters is kind of who can do the thing the best so that's i mean like i think it's interesting to think about but i feel like the tells that you're talking about could be kind of 
explained away in the text. But they never refer to Ahab as white, and so everyone who imagines Ahab as white is imagining it. So they're all racist. Making assumptions. And yep. you know what happens when you make assumptions? You make an ass out of you, me, and Moby Dick. Yeah. So, good. I like it. Although, honestly, if I'd done it your way, where I got to spend, like, an entire semester and, like, take my time with it, not have to read the whaling chapters, I might feel better about it. But, like, no, I had to blow through that fucker, like, at speed because we were doing, like, a whole class that was just called Hawthorne and Melville where we were just fucking round-robining between their two, you know, multiple different books by them. So, I'll give it that. If I had been able to spend several months on it, maybe I'd hate it less. Okay. <laughs> and that'll about do it for us here on... Whoa, 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 Megan. Wait, 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 wait. We're not done here. We're not? No. See, one thing we failed to mention was Moby Dick is loosely based on a real white whale. No, we didn't forget to mention that. I, we mentioned that when I talked about In the Heart of the Sea, the movie about the real event that Moby Dick was based on. Oh, Chris Pine's movie. Yes. Yeah. There was really multiple white whales that were just floating around in the 19th century and people were talking about, oh, we got to get the white whale. But then different groups started killing the white whale and they realized, wait, there might be more than one white whale because how did like 10 different ships kill the white whale? <laughs> oh, shit. Everyone's a lie or not. But so anyway, the white whale had a name. Mo- Moby Dick. No. Ironically... His name was Mocha Dick. I don't think they're serving that at Starbucks. No, it's also brown, <laughs> which is weird to name. Whale, 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 brown dick. Yeah, brown dick. <laughs> the brown dick of the ocean, full of sperm. Could have named him Spotted Dick. <laughs> white on, dick. I'm on the hunt for the big white dick. Now, see, if you take my reading again... <laughs> Not only is Ahab of mixed race, he's... On the hunt for the big white dick. He's on the hunt for the big white dick. They wore a whale's penis as a coat. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, they do take the dicks of these dicks. And they make leather. It's special dick leather. Out of the... The foreskin. Foreskin. And it's very fancy leather. What do they call the leather? It's so expensive. RJ. Megan. They're literally doing rabbi's work. Circumcising the whales of the ocean. (laughs) It's just one giant bris out there. Well, that's why he's a heeb. (laughs) He has to get the finest of foreskin to make the finest of leathers to make the finest of furnitures. I don't know where to go from there, so... I mean, do you ever imagine, <laughs> you know, all these dicks floating through the ocean as literal dicks? See, that would also make the story better, right? That would so make the story better if they're just fighting this literal monster penis that just took his leg off. And then he carves a smaller ivory penis for his new leg. That you just see the scrotum <laughs> breach the water. You go, ah, oh, look! Scrot! We have two balls Scrot on the So, that'll about do it for us here on Ono oh Lit Class. Mocha dick, though. I mean, <laughs> you gotta really think about Please. it. Please. Please what? Please let this end. But there's Mocha dick, and now there's Moby dick, there's Monstro. 
there's a lot of whales <laughs> and mocha frappuccino dick. But why would they name it Mocha Dick? I don't know. I don't it was white. It was more than one. And can you imagine for years, all these people talked about is there's just one fucking white whale <laughs> and we're going to find it. And then it took them years <laughs> to figure out after multiple people were killing the white whale. Like, hey, wait. Maybe so there's just a variety of whale that comes in white. Or that it's fucking a pretty, uh, it's not like the rarest mutation ever. Nope. And so they all go hunting for the white whale and they're like, no man, you're lying. We killed the white whale. And someone had to sit them all down like, wait, maybe we all did it. <laughs> maybe the real white whale was the friends we made along the way. Whoa, that's deep. I mean, and me, I'm just on the Weedo deck like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, boy. Yeah, boy. <laughs> I love the ocean. I hate it. I hate it so much. No, you know what I hate? These fucking parents who name their goddamn kids gas and board. Look, man, if you want to make crotch fruit, that's fine. All the power to breeders out there, okay? But don't name them gas and board. That will about do it for us here on this just just exhaustive episode of Oh No Lit Class. Oh, by the way, mocha dick, no hyphen. Good to know. If you... I don't even know anymore. Uh, remember that if you leave us a review on iTunes, we'll give you a shout-out about whatever goddamn nonsense you want. And, yes, but... You know, if you ever think I go into a Starbucks, I'm like, yo, man, I need, a like, a mocha. And they go, like, what size? And I go, dick size? Like, will they understand I mean whale-sized? No, they will not understand that you mean whale-sized. Come, get, come in, get your mocha dick. How come they don't have a Moby Dick drink? You know, because... Obviously, they na- they openly is, named you their can, store. You can check us out against, on Facebook they and named Twitter. The store after Starbucks, you can listen to us on from Moby Dick. You can listen to How us. How come they have like the Queequeg coffee? You can listen to us on Ahab. iTunes. Shut the fuck up. They have sandwiches. Shut the fuck up. You can listen to Ishmael us on. Oh my god, I'm gonna kick you in the dick. I, well, I'm subscribe, to subscribe, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can listen to us wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Also at ohnolitclass.com. Thanks to Best Day because he made the song that we use as our intro. See, nice white chocolate with a couple chocolate chips in there that are the eyes. I'm right? Megan. I'm Mocha Day. We love you. You want to lick at my dick? Bye. <laughs>